Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, everyone. Hope you're having a fine Friday. We are just finishing up the week over here while celebrating a Warriors win in what was a surprisingly tight game, although I think we won by something like 16 points at the end. So yay, go Warriors. Because it's a little hectic around here and it's getting late where we are, we are going to head right into this week's featured interview with Andy Dunn, the co-founder and former CEO of the posh men's clothing company Bonobos, who has written a new book about his long secret bipolar disorder that merits all the attention it's receiving. It's not a typical business interview, but we learned a lot all the same and hope you will too. More with Dunn in a minute, but first, a quick look at a couple of the week's news stories. Everybody knew that cryptocurrencies were the Wild West, but stablecoins were supposed to be, well, stable. This week, however, stablecoins have rocked the financial markets and riled regulators. One such coin, TerraUSD, is currently trading almost 87% off its peg of $1 and threatening to wipe out almost $18 billion in asset value. As Caitliff Ostroff explains in an excellent Wall Street Journal article today, the problem lies in the design of so-called algorithmic stablecoins. Unlike asset-backed stablecoins like USD coin that have cash and short-term U.S. government securities reserves that protect their value, algorithmic stablecoins like Tether are supposed to maintain their $1 peg based on the buying and selling of other cryptocurrencies. Tether's parent, Terraform Labs, relied on traders to exchange one Terraform coin for $1 worth of the coin Luna whenever Terra's price fell below $1 and do the opposite when Terra's price exceeded its $1 peg. Last weekend, however, traders that had big Terra positions in something called Anchor Protocol, a quasi-bank owned by Terraform Labs that pays crypto holders interest in return for use of their coins, sold their Terra causing the price of the coin to drop and precipitating a run on the currency. Terra's creator, Do Kwan, thought that a $3 billion emergency fund he maintained would be large enough to help Terra keep its value. But with this fund now largely depleted, the Terra community was desperately searching for a way out today. Meanwhile, look for the SEC and the Treasury Department to open up new investigations into stablecoins in the days and weeks to come. Strictly VC Download's favorite punching bag, Elon Musk, popped back into our newsfeed today at 2.44 a.m. when he tweeted that his plans to acquire Twitter were now, quote, temporarily on hold. This was followed two hours later by another message that he was, quote, still committed to acquisition. Is Musk trying to renegotiate his deal to buy Twitter? If so, an article by CNBC's Alex Sherman suggests he may be exposing himself to billions of dollars of liability. It's easy to see why Musk might have cold feet. In addition to the fact that Twitter missed its revenue numbers in its latest earnings report, the stock market, and specifically Nasdaq, has tanked because of worries about inflation, factory shutdowns in China, and the ongoing war in the Ukraine. Twitter has lost $9 billion in market cap since Musk made his offer to buy the company last month. Meanwhile, Tesla shares are down more than 20%. Despite Twitter's shortcomings, Musk will have to pay Twitter far more than the $1 billion reverse termination fee that he negotiated with the social media giant if he just walks away from the deal. 
The $1 billion breakup fee only applies if there is fraud or an outside reason a deal can't close, such as regulatory intermediation or third-party financing concerns. Absent these circumstances, Musk could be opening himself up to a massive breach-of-contract lawsuit from Twitter if he decides to withdraw his offer. Musk may be hoping that Twitter's bots and fake accounts qualify as a reason to invoke the breakup fee. And he may be betting that Twitter doesn't have anywhere else to go. As Sherman reminds us, Twitter's board never bothered to push for a higher price because it knew there were no other buyers even close to Musk's price. But if Musk doesn't pony up, Twitter's board will have options. None of them good for Musk. Up next, Connie's interview with Andy Dunn, co-founder and former CEO of Bonobos. But first, a word from our sponsor. As a startup founder, it can often feel like 24 hours simply isn't enough time in a day. SeedInvest helps early and growth stage companies simplify their fundraising through equity crowdfunding, which aligns your marketing with your fundraising efforts. Now that's a growth machine. SeedInvest has over 600,000 everyday angel investors on the lookout for deals. What are you waiting for? Apply to raise today at go.seedinvest.com slash VC. That's go.seedinvest.com slash VC. Earlier this week, we had the chance to talk with Andy Dunn, a fashionable founder of a fashion brand, Bonobos, that sold for $310 million to Walmart in 2017, a decade after Dunn and Stanford Business School classmate Brian Spaley began sewing the pieces together. Over that period, it looked to outsiders like Dunn was having the time of his life, living in New York, traveling in A-list social circles, and building a brand that became known throughout the U.S. and beyond. What outsiders are only now learning is that Dunn was also wrestling quietly with bipolar disorder, a mental illness that often strikes people as adolescents and young adults, and that took Dunn and his family by surprise when, as a 20-year-old Northwestern University student in Chicago, he experienced a psychotic event. Because of the possibility that the event was a, quote, one-off, in the words of one of his doctors, his family and Dunn dismissed his probable diagnosis and the attendant medication and therapy that it requires until he had another even more dramatic psychic break 15 years later, just as he was on the precipice of selling the business to Walmart. It was bad enough that Dunn spent a week in Bellevue Hospital in New York and was charged with misdemeanor assault and felony assault of a senior citizen after batting away his then-girlfriend, now wife, and her mother who were trying to keep him from hurting himself. Dunn writes about the experience in often vivid detail in a new book called Burn Rate that is anything but a business book and is very much an effort, he says, to shine a light on an illness that impacts a surprising number of entrepreneurs. More from that chat follows. Andy, I had started reading your book last night and I was so tired and I couldn't put it down. It's so (laughs) well done. Thank you. I have to read so many terrible books and I like, (laughs) I look at like the first chapter and the last chapter and, you know, I say that I read it, but yours is really great. I still have some chapters to read in the middle, but I think I read through eight and then I read 15 through 17 and I couldn't get enough. So to ask the most obvious question as a starting point, 
You started writing this in 2019. What was the impetus for you to say, I'm going to just tell the story now? Great question. So I was coming up on the end of my time at Walmart. We had sold Bonobos to Walmart in 2017. I was a couple of years into that and I was looking around the bend. I was looking at what's next and had more or less been selling pants for 12 years, mm-hmm. you know, between the decade of building Bonobos 07 to 17 and then two years at Walmart. And I felt, Connie, that the biggest impact I could have would be to tell the story that had been hidden. And it was such a juxtaposition in that 2016 had been this terrible year of the manic episode, the violence, the legal system. Was I going to lose my job? Was I going to lose my girlfriend? It was so challenging on so many levels. And then try to claw back to a place of good health and out of the depression that followed the mania. And then 2017 was the opposite. It was, you know, 10 year anniversary of Bonobos. We sold the company for $300 million. I got married. Cubs won the World Series. It it felt like everything looked so good from the outside and very few people actually knew the strife that was really undergirding all that. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, like how much more meaningful those good moments were having come from where we came from with the new family, with the woman I married and whose strength and resolve and acceptance really was how I rebuilt my own psyche and reintegrated and all of that. And so I felt like, okay, I'm excited to do new things and build a new company or whatnot, but this story is just really important to tell and to hopefully give other people permission to get their stories out there earlier, not after two decades plus of silence. Right, right, right. And just so listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read the book are aware, you grew up in Chicago went to Northwestern and it was there that you had your first episode and you got a diagnosis when you were in college, but it was one that you could potentially pass off as a a one-off. And so didn't really understand the gravity of the situation, I guess, until you were a little older during your time at Bonobos. I was wondering, was there any reason to think that this story would have come out without your telling it? Because I do think it's important that you are here telling your story and you're really leaving no stone unturned. I mean, the details I'm sure were very difficult for you to share. So I just wondered, were you ever made aware that someone else might tell your story if you didn't? You talk very openly in the book about being worried about seeing some of this in Business Insider, for example. You know, it's funny, Connie, it's such a good question. And you're right on the setup. I was diagnosed when I was in college. It came out of nowhere. It felt, you know, I guess black swan is the term they give. Something you just don't see coming. You never anticipate it. Yeah. And we buried it. We buried it as a family and I did. And we found other ways to explain it away as from mushroom use or Accutane medication that I was taking. We clung to any idea that it wasn't actually the diagnosis that I received. And so to your point, it comes raging back 16 years later in terms of psychosis and not for nothing, you know, a slow burn of eight years in and out of depression prior to that, which I mostly just bottled up and kept to myself because to admit it, and I know you've read some of the book now or a fair amount of it, to admit it would have been to concede that that diagnosis of bipolar disorder was accurate. Mm -hmm. And so if I could not acknowledge it, that would be a way to remain in denial. And so you raise such a good question, which is at this point, would anyone care? <laughs> I think that the moment of highest intrigue would have been right after it happened. Right. When I was in and out of the courtrooms in New York, in and out of the tombs at city center, 
there are court reporters, there are people there who like to break scoops. And then I remember this moment where there was a police blotter that came out and one of Manuela's family friends sent it and she didn't know the story and was like mind blown that there was this little report. Yeah. And somehow it didn't get picked up. And I, I guess at the time I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to tell the story in my own words, because once, as you know, something comes out, the headline is the story. Sure. I don't think there was like much quote unquote danger that someone else was going to tell it at this point, because, you know, whatever, I sold pants for 12 or 13 years and had more or less moved into more of a private life with a wife and a baby and stepping back from social media and stepping back from writing as many little online essays or whatever. So I don't think it would have come out. And I think that's typically how we treat mental illness, which is if we can get away with not talking about it, then let's definitely not do that. And to your point, I went into great detail first because my agent said something brilliant. She said, usually what sinks a memoir is the reader can sense that the author didn't go all the way. Mm -hmm. You know, like they can just sense you're holding back. And for me, what I felt like was there's nothing to be ashamed of here with mental illness. And so the only reason to hold back something because it's unspeakable, AKA shameful. And so by telling in precise detail, a lot of things that most people probably wouldn't write about, I felt like it was a way of saying, yeah, I I can write this because there was nothing wrong with it or nothing wrong that I did. The only thing that would be wrong would be to not deal with it. Right. And that's the step I want to help people with is the acceptance, because until you accept it, you can't deal with it. And we don't have the luxury of people waiting 20 years to accept their diagnoses. Right, right, right. No, it's a thankful thing that you are with us today and happy and healthy. I do think it was really gratifying as a reader for you to confess little details that, again, you could have easily left out. Like for some reason, I thought it was fascinating that you included the fact that you agreed to pay $13,000 for the bonobos.com URL without first talking with your co-founder, Brian Bailey. And then you called him afterward and pretended like you wanted his input. And then you call yourself a liar afterward. I just thought so interesting. I mean, there's so many turns like that where you're sharing your innermost thought processes. It doesn't reflect well on you necessarily, but of course it does as a reader because we do get that detail. So anyway, I've just another compliment, I guess, but also I'm wondering what kind of research did you do here? I mean, are you somebody who writes your thoughts down? Because there were so many very detailed recollections in the book. And I don't know if you had reached out to friends or you had taken notes or you're relying completely on your own memories. I did talk to people throughout. I tried to approach it a little bit like a historian, although of course it's autobiographical in nature. And I think I had some awareness that it's very hard to get that right. You know, like one's perspective is so biased. Mm -hmm. And so wherever there was an opportunity to lay blame at my own feet rather than someone else's, I felt like it was important to bias towards that. Mm -hmm. Because the only reason not to do that would be a matter of some kind of ego accounting. And I just think it's more interesting to own it. You know, and as you can tell, like in the book, I didn't start off that way, right? I was externalizing a lot of blame and it took me a while to see myself clearly enough to say, okay, I'm going to try to like objectively hold who I am and recognize that there's sometimes going to be ugly things about that. And for me, the lie to Brian, at the time it was horrifying because I just like, there's no excuse to lie to your partner about something important. And yet with the benefit of a decade, the more interesting question to me is, well, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. And unpacking that dynamic between me and Brian obviously is a big part of the second part of the book, which is why I thought that vignette was important. 
Got it. It was really, I don't know, it just surprised me. But again, there's a lot that surprised me in the book because I've had friends, have friends who have this disorder, and I don't really know, I guess, them well enough to know what the brain is capable of. So this was my first look inside someone's mind. You're talking about this first episode that you had in college and you thought you were the messiah. You thought you were the remedy to the world's ills. You're knocking on strangers' doors thinking you're going to be welcome. You're talking with birds, you think. You're writing a manifesto and sharing it with your roommates, one of whose mother tells you to get to the hospital. I just thought that whole process was really, really interesting. Amani, can I address that real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. It touches directly on what you were asking. So the messianic delusion, I remember so clearly, and just picture this sort of as a part of your life story. Imagine there was a day or a few days where you thought you were a deity. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you actually have that thought and you think it's true, right. like just picture it. Like it's kind of I don't know, it's, like, it's like being in a superhero movie or something. Or, you know, when we're fed this kind of literature and this storytelling for good reason as kids, because it's really fun. It's kind of that moment that a child who is having a rough childhood discovers that they have these superpowers and they're hard-earned. That is the stuff of what? 40% of children's literature. And so when it actually happens to you, it's very memorable. That said, there are other things that I didn't remember at all. And you've just raised them. Like the story about talking to birds. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that until I interviewed my friend, Eric, incidentally, who's now running for Congress. We sat down on a park bench in Chicago about a year ago or so. And I said, hey, I'm writing a book. Here's what it's about. And he goes, Andy, We've never talked about this in 20 years. And I was like, Eric, I know that's why I'm writing the book. (laughs) How dysfunctional is it to think that this happened and is obviously profoundly memorable in different ways for both of us. And it was so interesting to plumb the depths of that and discover that the reason we never talked about it was he felt like he tried a couple of times and I pushed him away, which sounds very much like someone in denial of a recent diagnosis. And he thought it wasn't his job to bring it up again which isn't a wild thing to put someone on in terms of motivation. But part of that section was hearing from him and then interviewing my friend, Nick Ehrman, who told me that I'd spoken to his mom. And I was like, whoa, I spoke to your mom and I adore his mom. So then I called his mom as a part of the book research. And I said, hey, you know, Nick was telling me about this conversation we had 20 years ago. What do you remember about it? And she said, Andy, I remember everything about it because you were unwell And after you got off the phone, I told Nick to get you to a hospital. And she's a psychiatrist. She's a psychologist. And I prayed. She said, I thought it was three things. It was either you were under the influence of some kind of drug. It was a bipolar manic episode, or it was potentially a psychotic episode that could end up with a schizophrenia diagnosis. And as my doctor now says, when someone goes in for mania, a young person goes in, we pray for bipolar disorder. Because it's so much more treatable than schizophrenia, which is in many ways so much harder. I mean, they're all hard, but your question was such a good one in terms of how the manuscript came together because it was a mixture of those interviews and recollections. And you also talked with somebody about the episode a couple of years after you graduated and the person, the friend really downplays it and says, let's never think about this again, which made you think that you shouldn't be talking about this with other people. And it's sort of very unfortunate. I'm sure that's a common occurrence. People probably maybe thought it would be too humiliating for you to relive, or he just didn't know how to respond to what he witnessed. 
Yeah, that's a remarkable story. You know, those conversations in your life that are so memorable where you can remember where someone was standing and where you were standing and the angle you faced each other and where you were. It's so vivid because I was making a bid, you know, in retrospect to like bring this up. Yeah. It was a hard thing for me to do. And the way that he received it was let's not go back there. Right. Which, by the way, is like a very like gothic Midwestern approach. To, <laughs> right. I'm from the Midwest. Know, not to blame it. it all on where I'm from in the Midwest, but it's like, <laughs> oh, let's right. not go back there, you know? <laughs> and, you know, the, the flip side of it would be like, well, shoot, like, let's go back there. Like, this is, right. this is like, you know, the good stuff. This is where growth happens. And I felt so shut down by that. And I actually got to speak to him about it. I got to speak to him about it around a year ago as well. And he had this whole element of his life where I had kind of like disappeared from his life. And I thought, you know, I think I never really dealt with this, but that was because I've been so angry about that conversation. I didn't even know it because I was so upset that my what was really primarily my trauma, it wasn't like he was that involved in it. He wasn't, there was nothing negative that befell him. What was somehow a harder memory for him than it was for me. That's so interesting. Also, Andy, I don't know if I was reading too much into things, but do you think that a family member of yours, your grandmother may have had this disorder? I don't know how genetic or not it is because it did seemingly come out of the blue and your family didn't talk about mental disorders as most families until maybe very recently did. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting that we didn't talk about my illness. Hmm. I can remember when that Russell Crowe movie, A Beautiful Mind came out about John Nash, the guy who invented game theory. Mm -hmm. Remember like seeing it and being like, that's such a great movie. And also knowing, well, hey, I have this dark mental health history that we never talk about. And in my family, normally like everyone goes to see the other person's movie or TV recommendations and just no one saw it. And I suspect in retrospect, that's because it's like painful to watch movies that are about mental illness. Right. Even for me, as I've been on this journey, it took a minute to watch Silver Linings Playbook where Bradley Cooper plays someone. I hope it's not a spoiler alert here. Or the third season of Ozark where Laura Linney's brother has bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So we didn't even talk about movies (laughs) about other people's mental illnesses. And so I had this moment maybe five or six years ago, where I thought, wait a second, a big part of my dad's life story is my grandmother being bedridden and her issues with mental illness. And the fact that my grandfather, we think became a psychiatrist to treat her issues. They were both World War II heroes. She was committed twice, both times by her husband. It's a very obvious connection. Now, in terms of, did she have bipolar disorder? I don't know. Only a psychiatrist would know. The family armchair diagnosis is something Funnily enough, like abbreviated BPD, but that is colloquially for like borderline personality disorder, Mm -hmm. which is different. And I confess, I don't know much about it, but it very much occurs to me that this stuff is heritable and that is an underexplored frontier of my family's history and conversations that we're starting to have more in depth now, in part, thanks to the book. Yeah. No, it's so important because, I mean, of course... If you're experiencing this and you have no reason to think that your mind's going to betray you, no reason whatsoever, it's a little bit harder than if you know that you have a family history and potentially something that's happening sounds sort of vaguely familiar to what you've heard before. I think, I don't know, I'd, I'd be interested to know from you, you know, you're, you're so clear in your writing, looking back at moments where you started to have a psychic break in one instance on the day of your now wife's bridal shower. And you said that owing to a lack of sleep, At some point during that day, you felt like you were becoming the Statue of Liberty. 
knowing now what you know about your mind and bipolar disorder, do you think if you were in the unfortunate position of experiencing another episode, you'd be able to see and recognize that and and get help more quickly or not necessarily? Well, that micro episode, as my doctor calls it, is one of the more unusual things he's ever seen, Mm -hmm. which is normally someone who is having psychotic thoughts, can't recover the same day. It's going to require hospitalization. At this point, I'm just surmising Mm -hmm. that my intense desire to stay healthy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had like a little self-intervention, but let's be clear. I had to be handcuffed. I was taken to Mount Sinai, which is a very formidable hospital in New York. So no, I don't think you can self-police, pun unintended, once you've crossed the threshold of having irrational thoughts. We all have irrational thoughts all the time, but we discard them. Mm. Once you're no longer discarding irrational thoughts, you're in trouble. Right. And so for me, the goal is between medication and sleep to not get to the place where I can't distinguish between a rational and an irrational thought. And the thing that I really like cling to is I've never not discarded an irrational thought when I had a good night's sleep and am on my medication. And that's why we're so vigilant about sleep as a family, just the pattern recognition that even that incident with medication coursing through my veins, it still wasn't enough because I'd been up all night. Right. And that was the same thing with the other episode from when I was 20. We think I was up for three or four nights. And you can imagine even a person of sound mind who's up that long. Sure is going to start to struggle. And so when you combine the two, the underlying mood disorder with the lack of sleep, that's where really anything can happen. I thought that was really instructive and an important takeaway from the book. I didn't realize, I mean, like you said, it's sort of common sense. Anybody who's sleep deprived could start losing perspective, but I didn't realize how important it was to the mental wellness of of somebody with this condition. Also, Andy, you talk about hypomania driving you forward during those early years. And I guess most of the years at at Bonobos, I'm wondering, I know that you've got a startup now, which I'd love to talk to you quickly about if there's anything you can share, but I'm just wondering, how do you approach your work now? You talk about this Faustian bargain, as you put it, where every day you had this almost superpower, this energy, this ability to operate on so little sleep, you know, now that you have control before it took you down, how does that impact your personality, your drive. You kept talking about your joie de vivre. (laughs) You're obviously much better off now. Just wondering if your pacing is different. It's such a um, apropos question, not even for the book, but for today, I had a conversation with a friend's brother who's going through some episodes, was recently diagnosed with bipolar two. And my understanding of it is bipolar two is a lot like bipolar one minus the mania, the same kinds of potentials for depression and for hypomania. And he was saying something that felt really familiar to me, which is that the changes that he's made lifestyle-wise, taking out drinking, being on medications, lithium, he feels totally numbed. And so one way to describe the journey for someone who I think has gotten a bipolar diagnosis and is trying to figure out how to deal with it is like, it's almost a pharmacological journey to see if there is a safe way to be hypomanic again. (laughs) (laughs) But my doctor has a beautiful saying, which is might we all be controllably hypomanic every day? (laughs) Because hypomania, it's actually not something that's unique to someone who has a mood disorder. Hypomania is a way to describe a mood state where you're feeling very energized, you're having creative vision, you're in a state of flow, you're feeling very optimistic, you've got like a real pep in your step. And 
if we're fortunate, we all have some days like that, mm-hmm. right? Those peak experience days. And if we're fortunate, we may have, I don't know, 10 or 20 days a year like that. I'm not sure what the number is. It depends on the person. For me, just speaking as someone with bipolar disorder type one, my manic episodes were set apart really by 15 years between 2000 and 2015. But in the, let's call it the intervening 15 years, I was probably a hypomanic 50% of the time and depressed 30%. And then, you know, had another 20% of what you might call kind of like a normal middle, middle of the road mood state, mm-hmm. or my doctor calls it euthymia. So if your identity in your memory of yourself is having access to this hypomanic state where you're feeling like that's you and maybe your creative or professional work is tied to that. It's very hard to say, okay, I'm going to take this medication. I'm going to wall off the extremes, but I'm never going to have access to that. Let's call it the joie de vivre again. Yeah. And so what I told this individual today is I said, keep going. I said, do you like your doctor? Individual said, yes. And I said, just keep going. It's going to take a while, but have faith, whether it's three months or six months or nine months, you're going to find your way to a cocktail of medications that's going to enable you to access that state. Mm -hmm. It's going to be miserable on that journey, but we're so fortunate that we live in an era where there are these great advances that have been made and you will get there. Now, PS, I don't know if that's true, (laughs) but I hope that that's true. And that was my experience. And I think that's the kind of mindset that you need because it's so miserable not having access to any good mood for months at a time. It's, it makes you feel like, you know what, maybe I will go off the meds and roll the dice again. Well, that's exactly what happened to you, right? You, you were prescribed some sort of medication in college. You took it for a little while and you felt sort of very numb. And so you quickly abandoned it, but then you found something in recent years that works really well. I did. Yeah. I had Connie, maybe a year of experimentation to get to the right mixture of medications. And we don't have to go too deep into it. I went so deep into it in the book that my nanny recently asked me if I had an advertising deal with a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> I was like, you no, I don't, I don't have an ad deal with, uh, you know, with Pfizer, but maybe I should have thought about it. That's hilarious. Um, but uh, the, reason, the reason I went into such great detail was just to kind of illustrate that this process takes real commitment takes work, but you can get there. And we all know this from people that deal with physical ailments, right? You know, we think about all the medications that people were taking who had tested HIV positive and what they go through. And we've seen it with all these other physical illnesses where it's brutal, but you do it. And I think with mental health, the journey is let's do it. <laughs> like, let's not right. pretend it's not there. Let's do the work to get better. Andy, what has the reaction been to burn rate so far? So you were talking about this founder friend whose brother experience he shared, but I'm guessing people are probably coming out of the woodwork because I think even you note in the book that a disproportionate percentage of founders compared to the national average of people have bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's been really stunning. The outpouring, I would say, I mean, certainly a lot of the traditional positive affirmation that you might see in the comments or the likes or the hearts across all these different social platforms. What's really struck me, though, is what's happening behind the scenes with the direct messages that I'm getting and direct communications, emails, things like that. It's just how common this is. 
You know, I don't think there is a family that is untouched in some way by mental illness or mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. And obviously the tent is wide on that. It's not just diagnosable illnesses, but all kinds of addiction and grief and trauma and touches everyone. If not directly, then by one degree of separation, someone that they love. And vis-a-vis bipolar disorder, it's so sad because so frequently what I see is a note about a family member with bipolar disorder who's now gone. Mm -hmm who took their own life. And that's hard, right? Because that we don't get to do that. We don't get to play that back, right? Like there's no, there's no pep talks there about, you know, sticking to it. And it's just heartbreaking. And I had one woman who shared with me, she said, my only brother committed suicide. And I didn't know what to say exactly. So I just said, Hey, you know, can you share an obituary or something so I can learn about his life? She said, you know, I try not to judge my parents, but we never had a funeral. It was 20 years ago. We never really spoken about him again. And it's just lots of heartbreaking messages like that as well. And it's unimaginable to me to not talk about it, but yet it also rings true. And suicide is the number one killer of young people, right? So let's let's be clear about it. Let's start talking about it. Is sure. uh, Number one cause of death for people between the ages of 16 and 35. I remember years ago, a venture capitalist out here who died of suicide, leaving a wife and three children. And I think actually that was the first time that I was really introduced to this concept. And then I sort of slowly discovered that people I knew, friends had it, and they were just very, very quiet about it. Andy, also, I just wonder- Who was that, Connie? Todd Brooks. Yeah. I think I remember that too. And I remember when it happened to an entrepreneur named Jody Sherman. Oh, yes. uh, From Eco Mom. Yeah. Who I had invested in his company and met him. It's different every time, but it's so often you hear that. What a bright light. Last person I would have thought, you know. Right. And my new new model is the first person I would think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, like when you see a light shining that bright, that's someone we should be paying attention to each other, but there's so often a flip side to that. Andy, I know you probably have to get going, but I wanted to ask too, if there's anything that you left out of the book, it seemed so comprehensive in ways, but I know I'd uh, seen the information had talked with you. And I think they said that Brian wasn't thrilled. He's very supportive of you, but he wasn't initially thrilled that you were going to write the book. And I just wondered if there's anyone who said, please don't include me in this or any uh, other details that you couldn't share for some reason. You know, it was a journey going through the people in my life and finding the right ways to engage with them on the book. And I think for me, the one that I spend the most time thinking about is my mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've got the best mom. And I know a lot of people say they got the best mom, but I really feel like I do. (laughs) Um, And I feel so sad that in some ways this story she feels reflects on her in a negative way because we didn't dive in and embrace it in a clear-eyed way. And I think it's such an unfair self-assessment on her part Mm -hmm. because this stuff is hard and it was 22 years ago and we had the cultural backgrounds that we had and Indian immigrants and lots of doctors, but not a lot of discussion around mental health. And she really did her best. And I think frankly, not accepting it almost made it harder because we were trying to keep something at bay that we all knew was there, whether Mm -hmm. consciously or subconsciously. And it's scarier dealing with a 
grizzly bear outside the house if you don't know what kind of monster it, it even is. Right. So that was the hard one for me was to try to see if she would come around to feeling like the service that we were providing to others would eclipse our own feelings as a family about making something that traditionally stays so private public. So I spent a lot of energy on that and making sure as much as I could that the story was honest and fair and would be productive, not just for me, because it does sometimes feel a bit selfish to write a memoir. Mm there's all these other people in it, none of whom has to be in the book. Uh, and for Brian's part, he was lovely. I saw him three times as I was writing the book and he was always encouraging to me and he never like dug into it. He wasn't like, let me roll up my sleeves and work with you on it. But I really felt like in spite of the fact that it's not easy and there's a lot of material in there that he probably wouldn't raise his hand and say, yes, let's put this out there. I felt supported the whole way and right up and through a text message I got last week from him saying, Hey, how's this going for you? I hope he reads it because I think he comes off very well. You speak so glowingly of him and also your mother. I hope that she knows that for the reader, at least your love for her shines through very plainly. Right. Connie, will you call her? I would be happy to have a discussion <laughs> with her about this. <laughs> um, I, I am curious. This sounds a little tacky. I apologize, but I am curious to know if you've been approached yet about the rights because I can easily see a movie being made from this book. It felt almost like I was watching your life. You were so detailed. <laughs> Nothing official to report there. Like what you just said, I've heard some people say who are connected to the industry, but there's nothing in the works. Let's get the book live tomorrow and, you know, <laughs> see what make, happens. Sure, make sure that we've got a book that people are reading as a first step. Right, right. Okay. And then two last questions. Startup. You're working on something you're launching in November. It's like a Tinder for friends. Yeah, it's in a way it's in the same zone around mental health. And I think the mission of the company is to eliminate loneliness. And it started as a lot of startups do with one product idea that we had. And we were excited about that. And then in the process of working on that, that didn't work, but we discovered something else that was working. And that was around friendship discovery. And there's a whole contrarian thought that you could actually build a friendship discovery platform. The historical non-contrarian part being that people would find it to be like an adverse selection to go to a website to make mm -hmm. friends mm -hmm. or to go to an app to make friends. So we're testing that assumption now. It's called pumpkin pie. We're pre-product market fit. So we're still jamming and iterating and learning behind a velvet rope, so to speak. And then hopefully we'll find something that's clicking and, and then we'll talk a lot more about it at that point. That's great. Well, I think especially post-pandemic, people are very eager to strike up new friendships as well as cement those that they have. So it makes a lot of sense. I do have to ask because this is listened to by a lot of investors. And of course, you have a huge network of investors already who would probably happily invest in you again. But are you open to funding? Have you funded the company? Have you raised a seed round? Yeah, we've done some stuff. The cool thing about doing the second one is you get to back yourself if you want to. Right. And we've brought in some other capital too. So we can talk all about that later. I'm excited to make a product announcement more so than a funding announcement, right? Like back in the day, if right. it was like, hey, look, we raised this money. <laughs> um, we did it. And now it's like, all right, let's, uh, let's solve a problem for users. And then we'll hopefully we'll have something to talk about. That's great. Well, Andy, thank you so much for talking with me about the book. I, I really do think it's great, great writing. I think it's a huge service to others who are aware that they have this disorder and that it might just be life-saving for people who haven't received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but may well recognize themselves in these pages. So thank you. Really a treat to talk to you. Thanks, Connie. Appreciate your attention to it. Bye-bye. 
Thanks, everybody, and a special shout out to our sponsor, Seed Invest. Go Warriors, and we'll see you here next week.